And I think the feeling was that's not going fast enough. So people are just taking it on their own initiative to do stuff. This is Future Cities, the series that brings together some of the people exploring and shaping what our cities could be like in the future. I'm Dr. Leah Lovett, Research Fellow at UCL Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis and Project Lead on the City of Women Interactive Map. In this first series, we're looking at the future of London, which is where I'm speaking to you from here at UCL, right in the heart of London. From the hustle and bustle of King's Cross to the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park in East London, and the urban hub in Canary Wharf. In episode four, we want to challenge how we look at London by delving a little deeper into its history. Many of London's streets and tube stations are named after men, and just 6% of London's statues are of named historical women. Many of those, such as Mary Seacole, have only been erected in recent years. So how representative is London of its population? And what role does the gendering of this city play in safety, security, and accessibility? Joining me to explore these topics is Lettuce Kemp, former head of content for the visitlondon.com website. Hello. And Montaz Marche, Wolfson-funded PhD student in history at the University of Birmingham and research assistant on the City of Women digital map here at UCL. Hi. So let's start by taking a look at the way London has been mapped in the past. Well, London, I think, is and has constantly been evolving and is a place of increasing change in urbanisation and development. And mapping has had to very much reflect that. So I think back from the 16th century, notable surveys by John Stowe, John Norden, James Howell, um, to 17th century, so Wenceslas Holler after the Great Fire of London, and John Stripe and Robert Dodsley, all the way up into the 19th century with the Ordnance Survey maps they all reflect the expansion, urbanisation of London, as well as the fragmented nature of its neighbourhoods and communities. But I'm not sure how much these maps have reflected the cultures and the populations of London. And I think there's a side of history there that has been lost um, because of maps and because of the kind of iconic image of London. I mean, yeah, just picking up on that, you kind of went up to 19th century and um, there's also the hundred and it's more than a 120 year project, which is ongoing, um, which is the Survey of London, uh, which is based at UCL. And that's a project to map London at the building level, really, parish by parish. So there's another kind of interesting historic project. But um, Lettuce, if you'd like to share some of your experience. I'm thinking about sort of more contemporary ways of looking at mapping London. London, if you take it as a massive data set, you have to divide it up. You have to think about... Um, you know, how, how can people interact with London if you don't? So it's always been essential to, to do this piece of work. When I was working on visitlondon.com, we very much were thinking about how do you take this enormous city and tell little stories that enable people to go, OK, this is what I want to do with my day. This is where I want to stay. Um, even to sort of bigger things like um, working on the Study London website, where it's like, how, where do I study? What's what's my campus environment going to be like if I'm in an outer London, you know, somewhere a little bit more like a mini city to if I'm in a central London? That there's a real sense of needing to to break up this data and to map it into stories because otherwise people cannot make sense of it. 
Well, really connected to that, there's um, there's this growing interest in counter mapping London as a strategy that really is about making room for alternative stories. Some of those alternative stories that you're talking about um, to be seen and accessed. The Memory Map Toolkit, which is a toolkit that my colleague Dr. Duncan Hay built, it's an open source application for mapping cultural heritage, and it emerged from a project with the Survey of London, who wanted to explore how digital maps might be used to combine official histories with some of these unofficial local histories of Whitechapel. So it was about how to combine these different layers. And and the Memory Map Toolkit, which came out of that, uh, has since been used to create um, maps like the Jewish East and Memory Map with, um, with Rachel Lichtenstein, who brought her personal archive built up over 20 years and contributed that to create this narrative interactive map with with lots of different media. And I guess the Memory Map Toolkit really reveals the opportunity for representing London as a layered city. So I was wondering whether you'd say uh, we need more layered maps of London so that people can see themselves reflected in the city. And what would the advantages of that be? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's crucial. And I think it enables more people to thrive because they feel like they are part of the city and they want to contribute to it. And the Mayor of London has put together a commission to actually look into what things are called, how people are represented. It's, it's you know, even at a government level, it's important. At an individual level, it's important. When you're adding these maps, you're telling new stories. And I think from a tourism perspective, that's exciting because you you don't want people to feel like, oh, I've done London. You want people to keep coming back, finding new things that relate to them. So you're creating more jobs because you're bringing people back to the city to discover something new. And certainly, you know, from a commercial point of view, that generates jobs, that generates opportunity. And it generates jobs and opportunity for people who can then talk about something that really matters to them and to share that and I think that's that's very key to just rethink that. I think Montaz that really links to your PhD research and I wonder if maybe you'd like to share something of that here because I think a lot of the things that Lettuce was speaking about just then speak very closely to uh, your motivation. Yeah absolutely I think what Lettice was saying about how we tell stories and deciding what stories will promote London and and bring people back to London. I think that was a massive part of what drove me. So my research project is looking at black women in 18th century London. It's an urban mapping project to plot as many women as I can and start to um, analyse their experiences and their presence and think about how they moved in the London space. And it was very relative to my own experience, actually, because yeah, I've always loved history growing up. But in A-level, when I was studying it, it was mostly political histories and military histories. And I didn't see a lot of women represented in these histories. It was more kind of the presence of women. And so when as I pursued more history in university, I started looking at women's history. And that in itself was it satisfied me, but not enough to the point where I felt like as a black woman, I was represented. So I had to then look further and look into the histories of black women in London. And so this project is a way to not only establish my own place in London and my own history and feel connected to London in a new way, not just as my home city, but as a city with all of this history that of women just like me, but then also to kind of ensure that in the future, other black women, but also women just in general, have 
this connection to history and have a visual aid to kind of show their place in London and how much they've contributed. And I think as well, City of Women is essentially that same thing, a visual demonstration of the expansive and the intricate and as well often overlooked nature of women's contribution to London and putting it on a map and having that visual image and telling that story visually is so important and so powerful. Not only the tourists that come into our city, but also those of us who, you know, call it home to kind of really re-engage with it. Yeah, and I agree with you. And um, and it's because of your close work on the history of Black women in London that you joined this project, City of Women, which briefly is, a, it's a project to rename the stations of the tube map after London's great women. Um, it's led by Rebecca Solnit, Renia Dolodge and Emma Watson. Um, but here at UCL, we're using the Memory Map Toolkit to create an interactive digital version of their map um, as part of that project with funding from the EPSRC um, and UCL uh, Grand Challenges and the Centre for Critical Heritage Studies. But um, I'd like to, if I may, quote Rebecca Solnit, who made the first City of Women map um, together with geographer Joshua Kelly Shapiro for New York. And she said, I think her quote kind of really picks up some of what you were saying, Montaz. She said, I can't imagine how I might have conceived of myself and my possibilities if, in my formative years, I'd moved through a city where most things were named after women and many or most of the monuments were of powerful, successful, honoured women. Um, and so they, yeah, they created the New York City of Women map as a proposition in that sense and an invitation to imagine um, a different kind of city. Um, and when the City of Women London uh, project launches next year, the idea is that you'll be able to explore some of the biographies and the arch archival materials related to uh, the names on the map through through the kind of digital interactive memory map. I think the tube map is incredibly well known. It's, uh, it's something that represents London. The design of it, the iconography of it, just tells you that it's London it's as instantly recognizable as a double-decker bus and I think that the the putting those names when you've seen some of the other versions where people have put names on the tube and where they intersect it just is a really straightforward and simple way of explaining these stories and making you think about actually there's different people here and it's not just the same thing um, and, I, I, you know, as a Londoner, as someone who's interested in London's history and as someone who has worked a lot with London, London's businesses, I often don't think about this at all. Um, and it's great to be provoked into thinking about it. I very much agree. I think because I've lived in London my whole life and I've, you always see the tube map and it's such an iconic image and it's so representative of you know, the vast space of London and how much is crammed into kind of a such a small city, but it's so massive in, in the populations and its diversity and its cultures. And it's something I didn't really question um, in enough great detail or not interrogate enough. And I think as a space, it's especially thinking about the tube map and what it represents. It represents, you know, this massive underground network where most of London, I think, interacts with that. Men, women, everyone, really. And I remember once seeing a poster on one of the platforms when I was getting off of the train, and it was a historical poster that focused on Hannah 
dads who was the first woman train driver on the tube. And I didn't really stop that long to look at it, but just to kind of see that representation was really striking to me and it stayed with me ever since because it was it imagine it made me imagine looking at the tube and being on the tube in a very different way um and being in London in a very different way and reaching into you know and how women have reached into different spaces in London and potentially against the odds as well established and become a crucial part of London's history and London's construction and it's always enlightening to me to kind of keep reflecting on the different stories that intersect just by being on the tube or looking at the tube in that way. That makes me think of a couple of things I guess one is sort of reflecting on the process of the City of Women project and just how many names there are potentially for each station which is a really heartening thing about the project but also seeing kind of the concentration of names in the centre. I suppose how the infrastructure of the tube map speaks to kind of women's access to different parts of the city Um, but it also makes me think about the tube itself like as the space where people interact often very silently but it's a space that's shared. When the tube first was built it was quite a radical aspect of it was that people come together in these spaces where you can't really look out of windows because you're underground so it it encourages a kind of interior looking um, and that was probably very challenging right yeah so I I can't quote my source on this because I can't remember which book I read it in but I did read when the northern line first opened the directors of the company knew that people were very worried about traveling in it so they um they did a little thing where they put a man in a lead coffin for half an hour and said look he got out he's fine so it's fine to travel on the northern line and I don't feel like that's a campaign I'd want to run to promote a service but it, it's it's interesting the sort of way that they went well look this is how it's fine it's like being in a coffin um what I would say about the tube is that it's not it doesn't cover all of London so there's quite a large part of particularly outer London which and in the south of London which isn't on the tube so there are people who can't just hop on it and get into central London for the same price they have to pay more to go on the overground um, and I think that's can be challenging in terms of particularly, you know, women and low paid jobs um, and, and people getting around. Yeah, absolutely. I think the process of finding women and putting women on the map was to research as many women as possible in who have contributed to London or lived in London, who've done incredible things. But we found that because there's such a sparsity between um, in South London in, in areas of, of greater London, as you say, Lettice, that, that it was much harder to not only place one woman in that space, because there's so many women that could be linked to that. And it's how we had to be really kind of um, strategic in terms of what kind of stories we were telling. And we have to continually think about it. I mean, it's not something that is set in stone yet. So it's something we're still thinking about. So places such as Brixton, where... There are multiple histories there, particularly of people of colour who aren't reflected in history as much as they should be. We had to decide of how to reflect a whole areas of history in one person. We had to be very strategic in that. And there are so many kind of cultural disparities in terms of who 
is represented? Are we representing everyone? Are we truly representing the population of Britain? It's almost impossible for the tube map to fully reflect every woman that has made massive contributions to history and to, to present day. I mean, yeah, all, and all maps are partial representations of the world, right? And this map, when it's complete, will be a, a kind of proposition, in a way, an invitation for kind of multiple other iterations. And as you said, you know, there are so many women whose stories may never surface, resurface, but it's good to be able to pay homage to those whose, whose kind of histories are recoverable. Just to follow on from that, that's okay. Um, I think as well as kind of a visual as a visual tool, the, these memory maps are important for future generations of women um, and, and any other map that is created is for future generations of whoever it's representing, whosoever story that is being told, because not only is it is it partial. So, you know, you can really inter- interrogate and challenge these these maps and think about who you would put on there, but also future women in this case can place themselves in that map and think I could potentially one day be on that map and to have that kind of representation and that those individuals being specifically honoured in that way is is so crucial for younger generations and how they look at London. Mm. And I feel I should mention that part of this project has been to, you know, there's been teams researching women, but there's also there was also a public call out. So a lot of the nominations of people have come from public contributions nominations as well which has been kind of a a wonderfully open part of this project so letters in your opinion will memory maps these kind of layered bottom-up maps change the way we look at the future and how I don't think it's the stories that you're collecting that will um, and the knowledge that you're collecting because we don't unlearn it and once people know it's there and realize it's there and they get interested in it you're sparking a passion for delving further. So the format is less critical than the information um, in the same way that learning about women's history doesn't mean we forget about our kings and queens and generals and um, statesmen. It just adds to the story. And I think this this wealth um, of new ideas and new information and new research is adding to it and certainly from a tourism point of view you know the black history tours are thriving at the moment um there's a slavery in the city tour that i desperately want to go on and a lot of people want to go on because it's it's just retelling the story with all this new information and i think that's that's fascinating and the same with um the uh hayley rubenhold's book about jack the ripper you know suddenly the focus isn't on this mysterious man that nobody knows about rather than the five women who had names and who were people and we do know about them um so you're just twisting the narrative to to tell more layered stories and i think that people respond to that i think it's exciting and it's really interesting so actually when you start to share the information you've collected i think people will be very excited about it um and i think it will remain knowledge that's been put together in future and people will want to use it so it's about changing perspectives on stories how do we deal with these histories sensitively and in ways that empower the women that feature in these stories so to, to something you know the city of women map is is being organized around the accomplishments of women um and non-binary people um and um i wonder how 
Yeah. I wonder how we tell stories where, for instance, that it's the women victims, that, that the victimhood doesn't become the defining feature of the story. Yeah, I think there's always a difficulty in navigating stories because particularly when this is when we're telling stories of other people and that they don't necessarily have they haven't had the opportunity to tell their own story and define their own narrative and it's about recognizing the person and I think it's about putting yourself in that position so for example if I was looking at a particular woman's story if I were her how would I want my story to be told how would I want to be remembered and I think it's about in a lot of sense it's about empathy and it's about recognizing that you know the power behind a lot of the the words and identities that we place upon people I think as well in terms of remembering particularly for women there are a lot of labels that are seen to be demeaning but are actually quite they're equally powerful they're equally in emboldening so you know the, the phrase of like the housewife and the ha- a homemaker as if that's not a powerful and important position so I think it's just taking away the stigmas of the labels and employing empathy for whenever we are engaging in someone else's history and someone else's story. It's about presenting the facts, presenting the context and being thoughtful about what you say, just not making assumptions and questioning those assumptions. Absolutely. I think assumptions is one of the biggest challenges, I think, to history. Particularly in my field where I'm looking at black women, a lot of the assumptions of black women in the 18th century are that black women were servants. And a lot of women were servants, and I'm not denying that. But there's a lot more to that experience. And there's a lot more to the humanity and the personal side of a servant. And just because there is an occupation or a place that you you hold does not mean your experience is the same as anyone else. And it's recognising the individuality of every woman and every story that we tell it's just recognising that each person is a person and treating them with that courtesy and that respect of honouring that humanity. And I think when we kind of engage with that in those histories, it's so refreshing and it's so enriching and it forces us to ask questions and more difficult questions, not only of the way we are looking at history and the way we're looking at our cities, but also what questions we're asking and, and who's asking them and the position that we hold when we're asking them. I think those are always important questions and reflections to have when engaging with these things. It seems to me it's also key in terms of how we connect with the spaces we occupy and how we see ourselves reflected in them and kind of write the right that we have to be there and to access them. Thinking in terms of, you know, looking back to look forward being so important because it's it's recovering stories that were always there that maybe have been covered up or become invisible or become erased it's 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 adding isn't it it's adding stories it's not taking away existing stories it's adding new ones that were there and and, you know bringing them to the front to share that spotlight with you know a limited number of stories that have always been there you're now just pulling up more and saying these are now all the stories we have Um, I think it's interesting the debate around statues and who should have a statue um and the fact that people feel so strongly in you know completely opposite directions about it that in itself is going to become part of history that we as a society debated that you know people have very strong opinions about it but it's part of our developing society that we do have that debate that we do say look you know should we should we have a statue of someone who we now retrospectively find distasteful 
and that story becomes part of history. It doesn't mean that if we take the statue down, he never existed or the story never existed. Is that the work you're involved in at the moment? Um, it was uh, the last piece of work I was doing before I left London Partners was to really think about the diversity and inclusion and how we both incorporated it internally and how we sort of reflect it out towards London and just really thinking about the conversations that as a tourism body you might need to have with museums, with galleries. Um, and I've been doing, a, you know, I've, I've had a lot of conversations over the years with museums, with galleries, with bids and with councils about the sort of cultural work they're doing in that space. And when you see, on the one hand, you might have a local museum who's like, oh, everything here is English and London and our borough, you won't find anything foreign. And then you have another borough who is embracing the fact that the borough is diverse and bringing people in to tell the stories of their lives. Uh, Croydon Museum is a really good example. They've just done a queer Croydon exhibition. They've done this amazing experience. It's curated by people who had lived experience in the borough of what was going on. And it changes you, I think. It's really about thinking about how you communicate that externally and how you be honest and authentic about what your city is. What you were saying about which stories we choose to foreground is also key as well. You know, I think of the Fourth Plinth project has been such a fascinating project in terms of temporary, um, the temporary occupation of that plinth in Trafalgar Square, which ultimately is the public square in London organised around, you know, Nelson on this towering column surrounded by lions and generals. And there isn't a parity of in terms of the stories that we're telling at the moment. So, yes, it's additive, but it's also about how do we even out the narrative? I think it's a huge challenge because you compare a woman with a tube station on a map, but when someone walks out of that tube station in the real world, they're not going to get a sense of that unless someone has taken an action to put something like that in place. There was an interesting campaign just before Christmas um, around black plaques where two organisations actually paid for posters to be put up around London with sort of mocked up black plaques commemorating, you know, brilliant local people. Um, The official blue plaque scheme has less than 2% representation of black and Asian Londoners. And I think the feeling was that's not going fast enough. So people are just taking it on their own initiative to do stuff. I guess that's how it always works. People put up a statue because, you know, someone does a campaign and says, right, we need a statue of this person. I'm a big fan of them. I want a statue of them. You know, it's it's always, a lot of this stuff is driven by individuals, I think, um, and always has been. So um, I think that will always be the case, really. People need to get a bee in their bonnet about the fact that someone important has not been commemorated and take action. I think that's a really important point. I think it's about ownership. There's a motivation in terms of why people want to tell these stories and bring up new stories or stories that have been erased is a sense of ownership and owning the space that they live in and feeling like they have a place there. And so repositioning the narratives that have been told in order to reinforce that. And I I think we should encourage this sense of ownership and recognising that, you know, each and every person that walks in the London space has a story and has a history that should be embraced. And you're absolutely right, it does take individuals, it does take local people to kind of come together and tell those stories because there are a lot of stories that still remain unknown, even to, you know, the, the upper echelons. And they 
tell those stories, not necessarily you know, in books, but it's, you know, oral histories, it's films, it's photography and all these different incredible mediums and using that and taking, you know, taking a stand and saying, this is my history, have a look. That's how we can kind of almost unite so many tiny stories into one incredible story of London. You have been listening to Future Cities, brought to you by UCL. To hear more podcasts from UCL, search for UCL Minds wherever you download your podcasts. This podcast is an Aunt Nell production. The producer and editor of this episode was Shivani Dave.